You're listening to All the Best. I'm Danny Stewart. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're continuing our 500 retrospective series with another episode from our archives. Life After first aired back in 2017 when Jess Hamilton hosted the show. In this episode, stories about loss, grief, and the emotions that often remain hidden. Picture a Christian priest, an Islamic mullah, a Coptic priest, and a Jewish rabbi each in full regalia filing into one little hospital room in Wellington, New Zealand. Sounds like the start of a joke. This is the scene that Kate, we've changed her name for privacy by the way, found herself in, in an unusual attempt to save her mother's soul. Kate's mother was more or less an atheist. In the few days before she passed away, she told Kate she wanted to be cremated. No fuss, no tangy, which is a Maori funeral, one where the body lies in an open casket before being laid to rest with the ancestors, and she didn't want to be embalmed. Her ashes were to be scattered with Kate's granddad on the land of her ancestors. She wanted to be returned to the land. When Kate's mum drew her last breath and all of the doctors had left her alone, Kate said she felt a deep canyon of sorrow. But soon, worry also started settling in. Kate felt she had the responsibility to send her mum off correctly. She started worrying that her mother's body hadn't been blessed before she died. She was anxious about returning her body to her ancestors as ash and not whole. This worry soon turned into a rational panic that her mother's soul needed to be put to rest and it was up to Kate to make sure it happened right. Looking for answers, Kate found herself a chapel at the hospital. She describes this chapel as a little room for people of all faiths. And here she was told that she'd be able to seek religious assistance from whichever denomination she chose. But her mother was an atheist, so who to go with? In her mounting panic about the future of her mother's soul, Kate made the decision to have her mum blessed by whichever of the spiritual leaders were available in the hospital chapel that day. A komatua, a Maori elder, came and blessed her and assured Kate that her mother's spirit was at peace and that her body in ash form would be sufficient. He also assured her that she would follow each of her children on the wind, across the water, and bask them in sunlight. Then came a Christian priest, then an Islamic mullah, then a Coptic priest, and then a Jewish rabbi, each to have their turn. Kate says that even though at some points she had no idea what was being said or the significance of it all, The ritual of all these religious figures offering their condolences and sacred words was deeply moving. And perhaps a little comical. Like when she was asked if her mother had attended church or the synagogue, Kate just had to suppress giggles. But at the end of the day, Kate was just happy to have the spiritual insurance policy. Maybe more for herself than for her mum. The stories we're hearing today are about life in the wake of death how we cope, who we turn to, and the things we do to make it better when we're left behind. Have you ever looked at a mountain and felt overwhelmed? 
but also strangely comforted by its hugeness, that vast, unpredictable and eternal enormity of nature. Bethany Atkinson Quinton believes that nature helps us understand our own humanity and gives us the power to heal. Our first story this week is the final piece from our recent listening party in Sydney, where a bunch of all the best listeners all sat in a theatre and heard a collection of nocturnal stories about sex, worry, midnight adventures and finally the darkness of grief. This story by Bethany Atkinson Quinton is our favourite from the night. It's called Where the Sky Meets the Sea, and it's about the feelings that we often keep hidden in the dark. In a culture where death and grief are tucked away from conversation and rarely understood, Bethany's piece unpacks how our emotional palette shifts with the tides and echoes in the wind. If you can, we recommend you listen to this one with headphones in a quiet, calm space. I have still never met anyone that loves Justin Timberlake quite as much as you do. We danced it out on so many occasions. And I want to say that I'm still a better dancer, but I know that you'd never agree with that. When my cousin Daniel passed away suddenly, it knocked the wind out of me. It swiftly dismantled this strong foundation that I'd had my whole life, my family. I had to rethink the way I viewed the world. We're such a small bunch. He left a huge gaping hole. I know why people say that when loved ones die, it puts the world into perspective. And it really does. It just makes you remember that living is the same process as dying. Like all sudden shifts in my life, I look to my friends to try and make sense of it all. I look to my family to help me deconstruct the world so I can try to figure out how to rebuild it. My friend Leah is studying to be a Gazult therapist. She's also a strong healing and loving force in my life, who I can chat to about grief. I guess I associate grief with loss. So the pain, but the particular flavour of pain around losing something or someone. As is my mum. It's about having to adjust to a new reality that's been imposed on you and to deal with the waves of trauma is what grief actually is the waves of trauma as it comes to you sort of can creep up on you every now and again it's not consistent and you can have a good day and a bad day but all of a sudden you might be out somewhere and you might look at someone and you go oh my goodness that looks like who I've lost and that can totally throw you back And then there's my beautiful friend Izzy, who gives us words like medicine that help us understand ourselves. Let me kneel and unpack these boxes of ants. Your ribcage, a home, a cave made of earth and bone. I will hold you like a shell to my ear, soft in the swell, almost breath. I wanted to try and unravel my feelings. I wanted to unpack the pain and take hold of it 
look at it up close and then reconstruct it myself. But as we know, life doesn't often fit into packed boxes as much as we try to make it fit. It's a really difficult thing to feel and move through and it's also quite confronting to share it. So I think a lot of people tuck their grief away because it's, I think when you express it, it touches on the inevitable grief that everyone has it in them. And I think it can make people really uncomfortable. It's really hard to just stay present with someone when they're in grief. I want it to feel your loss. I want it to confront my pain. But I want it to remember you. I wonder if we often try to make our grief smaller so that we can let others heal. But by doing so, that we actually bring about more trauma. It's just so hard to see the people that you love in pain. There doesn't seem to be a lot of places to share darkness in a public place. There's no room for sadness on the streets. So maybe we always keep some of it inside. I went away one weekend with my new boyfriend. We visit a back beach. It's cold. We're both wearing beanies. We sit down on these big rocks and look out to the ocean. It starts to rain. The waves are ferocious and unforgiving. They're demanding, dramatic. They feel big. I just burst into tears. I can't help but think that as well as seeing that motion that my body feels it and starts mimicking the waves, I can't stop crying. I feel silly because I don't know my new boyfriend that well yet. But in this moment, I think of you. I think it was at this moment that I really started to understand why without meaning to, people often look to the land to heal. Why all great love songs are written around loves as big as the ocean and longings that echo in the wind. My mind swirled and everything that I'd been feeling seemed to come to the surface. Someone will say, how are you going? And you go, good thanks. And like that good thanks is the most nothing statement because people don't really want to know how you are. I have to believe there's heaven because you have to believe there's something else. It's that time of year when the trees howl like bitch hounds in heat. The wind lopes after them, not whispering, not moaning, screaming into them until their bodies disintegrate. I wear the people I love around my neck like talismans, like prayers. I think about walking into the river, standing still and silent, to feel spent rain rush past me, boots swelling and sucking the mud. Sadness will be your friend if you let it. It'll move in, sleep on your feet, eat all your cereal and never buy milk. But look at the moss. It makes mud beautiful. 
It's every shade of green you can imagine. It holds the rocks and tells them it'll be okay and keeps the cracks in the footpath warm. Everything used to be something else and that is a comforting thought. The trees skim branches over white water sparks, pale bodies angled at the current, dripping bark. We reach together, shivering, trying to pick the sky for coals, skirts of plastic bags and catalogues catching in our roots. I think there's another spiritual side as well. And I think the loved ones are around you for a long time anyway. Just in your presence. When nature's bigger than you, you sort of have that lovely humbling experience of feeling small in the world. There's just this lovely thing like nature is big enough to hold the grief because grief is so big and it's just too much for our hearts sometimes. And I think the mountains or the trees or the ocean, it's there's something so nurturing and reassuring about it because it's big enough to hold your grief and it's okay for you to have that grief in that space. And the quietness, yeah, just lets you be, I guess. The more that I think about the longing and the loss, the more that I look to the way that we treat each other in the immediate moments that follow death. In my experience, we create an unnatural environment for something that is the most natural. I find the whole notion of funerals to be a crisp and stale place where you wear uncomfortable clothes and you're nice to people when all you want to do is cry. We try to keep death hidden, even at a funeral. I think in Australia, in Western culture, we don't have any rituals or ways that we support each other in grief, especially in that immediate time after you've lost somebody. And in other cultures, you know, if you lose a person close to you, you would actually help prepare their body or you would help even prepare their grave or you would, you know, make a lot of food for a celebration, weave garlands... In Maori culture, funerals are called a tangi, which just means cry or wail. And I remember when I was a child in Tuvalu, a man died in our village and the women just cried, like screamed. And it was like they cried for everybody. It was so beautiful. And I don't think we have a common faith or value system here that can bring us together in a supportive way when we're in grief. And so we sort of revert to a sort of strange, you know, Christian thing. And it's really awkward because people don't really go to church necessarily, but often we find ourselves there when we've lost someone we love. It's when we need to be the closest to ourselves. And I think it often just is even more trauma on top of the initial loss. It's really sad. Our bodies decompose, disintegrate, we become part of the earth again. So perhaps we are drawn to the land as it's the physical space of love's lost. And whether you believe in God or heaven or an afterlife or not, we do actually become something else because our bodies break down and we become earth or 
you know, water or, you know, whatever you do with your body. And so I do feel really close to those who I have left me when I'm in nature or when I look up at the stars or when it's a beautiful night because I guess then I'm in nature too in those places and so of course I'm closer to those that I love. I could have sworn I saw your head in the back of my car the other day. I think my brain is looking for a place to hold your memory because it doesn't make sense for you not to exist. It's hard to imagine things that are not present. My brain keeps shifting you. Your face is undefined. You're hazy. But the warm glow of longing cloaks my body and I can feel you. Grief seems to unwind with the trees. It mimics the slow growth of grass. It needs to be nurtured so something new can grow from it. With time, the lines that draw our memories become out of focus so that all we're left with is an impression of sadness, longing, anger, confusion, love, laughter, happiness. I needed a place to put you. It's getting colder. The sky is dark. A big raindrop falls on my red nose. Your big head and your salmon shirts press like ink in my memory in this moment. I look out to where the sky meets the sea. It's far away and almost like it doesn't exist. But we know it does. This is where I will remember you. The The cult of the ruler, the grace of God, will bury the white man. That story was by Bethany Atkinson Quinton, made in loving memory of Daniel. It featured the poem Exposure by Izzy Roberts Orr. If the content of that story brought up any feelings, you can talk to someone by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or get support online at eheadspace.org.au.
You're listening to All the Best. I'm Jess Hamilton. Every year, Josh's mum, who doesn't have extended family of her own, drags Josh to a different family's house for Christmas. Josh is from WA, and for the last three years, he and his mum have spent Christmas with the same family in Bunbury, southwest of Perth, the Barretts. They have a beautiful home and a welcoming family, and it always ended up being a lot of fun. The first year, Josh spent a lot of time with Adrian Barrett, the young dad of the family. On the drive home after Christmas, Josh asked his mum what Adrian does for a living. It turns out he's part of one of the oldest businesses in Western Australia, but it was in no way what Josh was expecting. I was born in Bunbury, Uh, I still live in Bunbury and work in a family's business. I started working here when I was 17, so straight out of high school. The thing I love most about my job is the fact that every day is different. When I actually started working here, which I thought was going to be for a short period of time to earn some money and then go off to university and do whatever I was going to do, I realised what Dad got out of it, I guess. I realised the, the nature of the job and how rewarding it is and how what a good impact it makes on people's lives. Uh, my name's Adrian Barrett. Um, I'm 35 years old. Uh, and I'm a funeral director. <laughs> when I was growing up, I I never really wanted to be a funeral director. I wanted to be a scientist when I was a kid. <laughs> right up until probably I was 16, 17, I didn't really want to be a funeral director. Even when I started working here, I didn't want to be a funeral director. Um, but it was only through working here that I realised what a uh, what a satisfying job it was, what a rewarding job it was. Um, so William Barrett and Sons as a business was established in 1897. My great granddad came out from Ireland, from Bantry Bay, and he was a carpenter. So back in those days, especially in smaller communities like Bustleton, where, where we started, if someone died, a local carpenter would knock a coffin together and the community would sort of organise the funeral and the burial and as communities grew, more people were dying, more coffins were being made, and that was really how most funeral directors started around Australia. Obviously, being a funeral director in a small community, quite often there's people that we know that we're conducting the funerals for, and if not knowing the person themselves, then their family members or their close friends. Often when a death's more sudden or often tragic um, and often traumatic, family have got a real desire that they do want to come and see the person that one last time because they didn't have a chance to say their goodbyes or anything. So in a lot of those situations, there might have been some sort of trauma, so like a motor vehicle accident or something that's caused the death. So often we are able to, even if there's been head injuries or injuries to limbs and things, um, we are able to, well, I guess it's sort of literally piece the person back together and it can take up to 12 hours Um, to do that but it's a really important thing to do if at all we're able to because it it does I mean it makes a huge impact um, to people's lives you know well and truly after the funeral if they have had that chance to come and actually say their goodbyes. People often ask you know is it hard doing friends or family members funerals but ironically it's actually makes me more happy to do my job because it's I feel like I'm doing something 
practical that is helping everyone that I know. So if I knew someone that had died and I wasn't a funeral director, I really don't know what I, I'd feel like I want to do something, but I wouldn't know what I could do. And whether I was a funeral director or not a funeral director, those things would still happen. But I guess I'm just privileged that I do the job that I do, that I can actually make some sort of a difference and help those people that I know. I find doing ch children's funerals really difficult um, because I, I can't help but um, draw parallels between that family's experience and, you know, what if one of, what if one of my boys died? So I find those funerals really difficult. I'm not religious at all myself. I do see the positive impact that people's religious faith makes on them, you know, in really tough times. I see the strength that people get out of their religion and their beliefs. But for me, I don't have any beliefs. Yeah, I, I kind of think this is it. I don't claim any sort of profound knowledge or anything about death or dying, except that I know that it's a reality and that it'll happen to all of us. I guess how it affects me day to day would, would really just be, you know, to hopefully make the most out of the life that we've got because literally things can change in an instant and whenever, like you always hear when something tragic happens, people say, I never thought it would happen to me. But we all know that tragic things happen and there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, so you ne really never know what's around the corner. So I guess I, I just like to live my life in a way that's, you know, if I was to get hit by a bus tomorrow, I'd say, well, you know, I don't regret anything. I've, I've had a great life and, yeah, I'd hope, I'd hope that I could say that every day. That story was by Joshua Garlop, with special thanks to Adrian Barrett. That was Life After, an episode we first aired back in 2017. Jess Hamilton hosted the show, Selena Shannon was the executive producer, and Tegan Nichols mixed the episode. You've been listening to All the Best on FBI 94.5. You can listen back to our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.